the CIOs in the audience might take notice of this, is we're getting vast improvements in hardware, which opens up new territory for machine learning and AI. It's easy to say our data is bad. Is it 90% inaccurate? Is 80% inaccurate? And you need to measure that because otherwise, if you fix it, how do you know if you fixed it? Welcome to the CIO Exchange Podcast. I'm Eden Porter de Leon. Our unique digital experiences are now being driven more and more by artificial intelligence and machine learning, making it a critical component of the applications that businesses are using to differentiate themselves in their respective industries. To make the promises of AI a reality across global organizations, it has been equally critical for technology leaders to have a firm grasp on the difference between conversations about the state of the art versus the state of the practice. In this episode, Bask Iyer, VMware CIO and Chief Digital Transformation Officer, has a hype versus reality AI fireside chat with Neil Jacobstein, chairman of the AI and Robotics Track at Singularity University and MediaX Distinguished Visiting Scholar at Stanford. In this conversation, they tease apart what's working, what's not, and what's next, so that IT leaders can translate the technology discussion into business outcomes. Hi, everyone. I'm Bas Geyer. I'm the CIO for VMware and the Chief Digital Transformation Officer. I have an exciting guest with me today, Neil Jacobstein, He's the Media Distinguished Visiting Scholar at Stanford University, where his ongoing work focuses on augmented decision systems. Very interesting. He's also the chairman of AI and Robotics Track at Singular University. But most importantly, although he looks young and charming, he's got several decades of consulting on AI in both industry and government. So, Neil, welcome. Thank you very much, Bas. Pleasure to be here. So we're going to have a discussion on a wide range of topics, but I thought we'll set the stage right now with the COVID situation. First, tell me a little bit about how it's going for you. You live in New Zealand, right? Yes. Well, I actually interact every day with the United States. I'm leading the technical infrastructure track at the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance, which is an alliance of many companies and organizations around the world. Actually, we have 15 different tracks addressing different aspects of the COVID situation. Mm. And I think that it's important to mention that the COVID has represented a huge number of challenges, different kinds of challenges for people. And the reason for that is that if you look at the kind of problems that we've dealt with in the past, we have not been focusing, except in the public health community, the AI community has not been focusing specifically on pandemic. In certain areas they have, I have a background in public health as it turns out, but it's unusual for so much new work to be done in a very short period of time. Since January of 2020, let me just mention some areas of AI that are now underway. Early warning systems for COVID-19 and other pandemics, disease detection, which still has many limitations with today's machine learning, vaccine discovery and testing, drug discovery and testing quite separate from vaccines, identifying patterns of disease spread, predicting the impact of reopening schemes, and mobile tracking and response systems. And that's all just AI and machine learning. And then we also have the use of robotics in COVID-19 response specifically things like using robots for disinfection, and that prevents us from having to send in humans into highly infected hospital and other environments, using robots to serve food and drugs to people who have COVID, 
And in hospital rooms, for example, again, we don't have to send in nurses. And even directly involved in triage or patient care. So there's a lot that robots can do that they haven't been doing before. And people who are interested in this might take a look at an article that my fellow editors and I put together in March of this year on the use of robots in COVID-19 pandemic response. And it goes through chapter and verse on how robots are being used. Yeah, it turns out, Neil, that we thought sending people home and making them work from home was difficult. Bringing them back in is not that easy as well, right? That's you know, right. The world has changed. It's an explosion of IoT, robotics at the edge, and how do you manage facilities? How do you make it safe to come to work? And all our conventional badge readers and so on are going to be challenged. People don't want to touch the doors. They want their phones to identify them and, and open doors for them, if you will, and not touch That's a printer right. to print. You know, there's so much practical applications of just this intelligence that uh, COVID is bringing to us. So there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and I'm hoping that we can use all the intelligence we can to open it safely. So thank you. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit on where AI is going? Because what we read and see, anything and everything is considered AI, but can you tell me a little bit about where AI is headed so we could be inspired to do more in the industries, if you will? So one of the things that's happened just this year is that OpenAI has released a generative pre-trained transformer that models relationships between massive databases of objects. And in the prior version, the so-called GPT-2, it looked at 1.5 billion parameters or different aspects of objects. The latest version, GPT-3, is examining 175 billion parameters. And that can be used for text models, can also be used for images. And these systems generate news articles and use novel words and sentences. They can emulate certain kinds of authors like Shakespeare. They perform arithmetic with very few examples needed. So why does that matter? Well, in the past, Basque, I'm sure you know that it often would take a lot of work to get an AI to understand the tasks that you wanted to do. And these systems can use very few examples, sometimes one example, to do a very credible job exercising a particular task. So what this system demonstrates, the success of these systems from OpenAI, basically demonstrates that we don't get an early saturation effect from massive amounts of data. Instead, we're seeing improved performance as we vastly increase the amount of data that's being used in these models. The models have even been applied past text processing into image processing, and there are examples of the system being given half of a picture after it's been trained on other pictures, and it will generate the missing half of the picture and do a very credible job of it. So that's really inspiring work. Another major change, this is less about a technology improvement, but for those CIOs in the audience that are interested, a big change since January of 2020, for obvious reasons, is increased scrutiny of AI bias. Now, there was a little bit of talk of AI bias in the prior years, but not really much. At the annual conferences, there would be one or two sessions. But now it's become a major area of inquiry. And the reason for that is that there's the unambiguous presence 
of bias in AI data. And the reason is that our training data are based on a sampling of a biased society. We have built-in biases. Mm. And there are different classes of bias, like race, gender, ethnicity, religion. And you could say, well, you know, what's the harm? And there are real harms. People get turned down for loans. They get turned down for jobs. There are real consequences. And I believe that detecting bias cannot be done by AI alone, although I think it helps a lot. You need teams of humans and machine learning systems to do a good job detecting the bias in your data set. And the undetected bias carries new and in some cases serious legal liabilities. Let me just mention one other area related to improvements in algorithms, and that's vast improvements in hardware. Most of you are familiar with NVIDIA's A100 architecture. It has 54 billion transistors on a single chip. And yet there's a company called Cerebras that came out with a wafer scale engine that has 2.2 trillion transistors on a wafer scale chip. And in addition, last, let's see, the summer of 2019, Google Research announced that they had produced a quantum computer that could solve a specialized problem, a very narrow problem in an extremely short amount of time that would have taken today's supercomputers about 10,000 years. Now, before we declare quantum computing a, a solved problem, it is by no means solved. That problem was a very specialized problem. And we have a vast frontier that we still need to address. But my point here is that something that has changed, and the CIOs in the audience might take notice of this, is we're getting vast improvements in hardware, which opens up new territory for machine learning and AI. Yeah, it's an interesting point, because I want to tell a story to make the point. I got to stop quietly because my wife is here. We're all working from home. She was my girlfriend at grad school, and we had to do an AI program on a Z80 processor. Oh, my. That was her first argument. She came to blows because we were supposed to write a program, but it couldn't even detect between Larry Bird and Larry the Bird. She called me all kinds of names, and I'm surprised we got together, but there was not enough memory or processing to do anything intelligent. So AI has come a long way, and the important thing for the CIOs and myself is you could get very pragmatic and say AI is not here or AI has been there forever. Yes, AI has been there forever, but the amount of processing and data and things you can do with this now is just incredible. That's right. So one of the things I was thinking about and what your thoughts on it is, I think data becomes pretty much the rocket fuel for AI. I mean, the more data you have, the more intelligence that you can do. And fortunately for us, we can deal with hardware requirements for data, either to the hybrid or through our public cloud. The issue is to get started. What do you think of the state of data in companies? Still have some basic problems to tackle that we could be tackling today, would you think? That's right. So part of it is not just about big data. Everybody talks about big data, but we need relevant data. And we need relevant data that is as free of noise as we can get it and free of bias as we can get it. And that means we have to do significant amounts of data wrangling before we actually get to the point where we can use the data in a machine learning application. In addition, a lot of times people 
borrow data from the division next door to them. Right. You know, the research group, the AI research group will borrow data from a, a friend in a division nearby, and then they run a pilot project, and then suddenly that friend goes away, and the source of the data goes away. So we have to have redundant and reliable sources of data. And then, of course, we need to make sure that the data really are the data we need to solve the problem of interest. Sometimes we get ready availability of data, but it's not actually the data that we need to solve the problem. So we have to be very good at critical thinking prior to using machine learning algorithms. Yes, this is a common problem in my profession. Almost every company I work for, they would start off with, hey, our data is screwed up. Our master data is screwed up. Customer data has got duplicates and it's not cleansed. So we should take the next few years to clean the data so we can do AI. And my reaction is you don't have for a few years and you're not aiming for, you're not trying to clean all the data everywhere. You need to find those relevant data. That's right. Cleanse it and move on. And, and even before that is you need to have some measure to say how bad it is. It's easy to say our data is bad. Is it 90% yes. inaccurate? Is it 80% inaccurate? And you need to measure that because otherwise if you fix it, how do you know you even fixed it? Yes. So I'm thinking there are some right. basic things that we have to really wrangle. That's a good term is instead of, being very esoteric, the CIO should take over some of these issues and wrangle them to death to say, get it sorted. And you're right, the data is, you always have to beg for data. You may own the systems, but the data is the responsibility of HR or somebody else. And we, <laughs> That's uh, right. when we are discussing, I mean, you know, wouldn't it be great to know who from the organization is most likely to leave in the next 30 days? That's and, right. That's a good one to do, but in order to get the data, you have to convince your head of HR, you have to convince all the HRIS teams and other people to part with the data or work with you. And in most companies, it becomes impossible. So that, that's right. I think first is getting the data, having a reliable set of data, cleansing the data that you require, and then getting yes. the permission. The data belongs to the corporation. It doesn't belong to a division. So the, the issue about knowing that you've got the right data is to some extent an empirical question. On the one hand, you want to use critical thinking skills. On the other hand, if you've got the problem that you know you're trying to solve, you can get some of this data and see whether it is predictive of being able to solve the problem you're looking for. You can always get better with massive amounts of data, but you actually want to test it early and test often to make sure that you're in the right space for having the right kinds of data. And is it real AI? Well, it's real AI if it solves the problem. I mean, I don't think it's worth arguing over definitions. What really matters is being able to solve practical problems with machine learning algorithms. Yeah, I always thought about even learning systems, right? So, you know, almost be a big experience where you type in an address to a bank and you may say yes. middle lane or something. And people say, do you mean this, right? Do you mean 10 MI with a capital M lane and to get the zip yes. code? And so in a way it's learning, right? So you're, you're typing something, the folks try to guess, the system try to guess that you really mean this data. So it's standardized. There are yes. techniques like that we've done to clean the input data. It's just, you have to think out of the box to say, how do you get the data in the right way? So you're not going through this cleansing process once it's done. But I always am fascinated. I don't want to spend money on a big data warehouse or large team before they can explain to me how bad it is and how would I know when I'm having success? How do you know when you're 10% better? Absolutely. And Bask, you and I have discussed previously the, the interest that we have in getting people to clean up just the portion of their data lake that is relevant to the problems that they're trying to solve, not trying to boil the ocean 
or the lake in its entirety. Yeah, so I think that is one way to start today. The other thing I thought about, and I wanted to know if you'd agree, is while it's fascinating to talk to somebody like you who spends a lot of time with both industry and academicians on where research is going, you don't want to think of this as too esoteric. You want to start doing right. it now because right. there'll always be more and more things happening next year and year after and so on in AI and machine learning. And you really don't want us to be sitting on the sidelines. You want us to jump in and do something right now. Would you agree? Absolutely. So it happens to me with the experience, sometimes you become too pragmatic and say, I've seen this story before. Yes, you have seen the story before, but the kind of things that is happening now with the processing speed and the data is quite different. So yes. you've got to regain your curiosity to learn this. That's right. And I think that the key to jumping in is to do a serious opportunity review. And for that, I would suggest that people look at the pain point problems that they have within their organization mm -hmm. and just list them and prioritize them and ask another question, which is, of these pain point problems that we're facing, and not just the AI group facing, but the company as a whole. So why do you want to solve the problems that are the pain points for the company as a whole? Because you don't want to solve toy problems. What you want to do is to solve a problem that if you succeed, it's not just a toy problem, it actually moves the needle of the company. And that's the key thing, because winning on a pilot project where the pilot project doesn't move the needle is a small win. Winning on a pilot project that solves part of an important problem, a big win. So you can order the priorities by what are our pain points? How much does it matter to the corporation that we could solve these things? And the other question is, how available are the data to solve this problem? Do we have to invent new sensors? Do we have to collect new databases? Or do we already have the data just unused on the factory floor? And so the question is, how quickly could we get into a project that really matters? I always thought about things here is you need to know what questions to ask. We need to train people yes. to ask the right questions. Sometimes you go into how do you solve it without knowing what the right questions are. For example, if you ask a CEO, would you like to know two days before a competition raises their prices? Would you like to know that? Now, you don't know how to solve it. But you would quickly know, he would come back and tell you, if I have that, my share price would be 20% more. If you go to a manager or HR, we've talked about this problem before. Wouldn't it be nice to know that these five people in your team are most likely to jump ship? In 30 days, they're going to go join somebody else. How do you solve the questions? Leave it to the experts. First is to ask the question. Now, they may come back and say it's impossible to do. We don't have the data. But it'd be surprising when you ask the impossible question, how much could be solved? Maybe they solve 50% of that problem, which is still worth a lot to you. And sometimes the data are available. In Silicon Valley, you can learn a lot just by going to the restaurants and bars that everybody goes to. And you hear people say, oh, I'm, you know, I don't like it at Company X. I'm thinking about leaving. Do you know of any other opportunities? Or you can scan bulletin boards for people who are involved in job apps like Indeed and other places where they're scanning for jobs. I mean, that's a hint that they're not <laughs> happy. <laughs> and not every company does that kind of scanning. So sometimes the data are surprisingly available once the company is lucky enough to have a chief technologist like you asking the right questions. I think asking the right questions and then doing this opportunity review that you talked about quickly. And yeah. the opportunity review could be a pager, right? It doesn't have to be a volume. It's just a quick pager to say what data is missing that would make us better decisions or get faster with the competition. And then a good thing of how on a scale of one to 10, how difficult it is to get. And then you can start digging into it. 
if you start from the wrong end to say our data is screwed up, what tools to buy, should you partner with this vendor and so on, without knowing what the opportunity is, you're just chasing a needle in the haystack. I totally agree. Yeah. I want to change and ask another question. You must have come across uh, AI on the edge. People typically think of AI as giant, I call it mainframes or public clouds or systems which have a lot of processing that you can send the data to and they can hold almost unlimited amount of data and unlimited amount of processing to do that. But you also know that the pendulum is swinging the other way as well. You need to make a lot of decisions at the edge. There's the amount of IoT devices you and I have at home is incredible and we want them to be intelligent. I don't want any more device to tell me what is happening. I want him to do something <laughs> you know, and talk to other right. devices. So tell me a That's little right. bit about AI on the edge and how you think about it. And is it, is it really another yeah. trend that we should dig into? Yeah. So let me just give you two examples, one in healthcare and one in the NASA space applications. So in healthcare, you want systems that are doing real-time analysis of your blood chemistry and your general health your heartbeat and your blood pressure and your hemoglobin H1C. So if you have diabetes, it can make adjustments to your meds. And some people have closed loop insulin systems, for example. And you don't want that system to be going out to the cloud each time. And then you have a rainstorm or a snowstorm and you have a disruption in your bandwidth. And suddenly your blood sugar goes crazy because the system's depending on a cloud server. I mean, that's nuts. So I think most of these systems are going to be hybrid systems, but we're going to have the capability to do computing at the edge. And the reason is all that amazing new processing power on a single chip. So you can do what supercomputers used to do in the past on a chip the size of your thumbnail. So that's very exciting. And we'll see that more and more in healthcare. And eventually we'll have embedded systems in our bodies and they won't be the size of your thumbnail they'll be the size of a quarter of a grain of rice. And they might even power themselves using body heat. So the NASA example is imagine that you're interested in understanding if there's any life underneath the ice of Europa and one of Jupiter's moons. And you land a system on Europa. And by the way, this is going to happen in the not too distant future. And a system will bore down through the ice and release a robot and the robot will have a camera and onboard machine learning and AI, pattern recognition systems to recognize features of life, like the ability to swim against the current, for example. If you see some organism swimming against the current or a large object swimming against the current, that's a pretty good hint. Or bilateral symmetry and moving in erratic patterns or eating another organism. So all of those things are good hints And you want the system to recognize those locally. Why? Because the latency from Europa back to Earth will ensure that you'll miss the shot. So it's just impossible. I I, I don't think AI is there to solve physics problems completely. No. (laughs) Right. I mean, you really need to have humans that are very keenly aware of the huge cost of latency. So that's a hint for IoT in general. When latency costs you big time, put the computing at the edge. Yeah, I still think so people who get worried about this, is it going to replace humans? You go into those science fiction kind of things. There are a lot of things I as a human do, which is not fun. I want the computers to do the job. And I want the computer to be intelligent. Every time there's somebody in front of my door, 
I don't want a notification saying there may be somebody at the door. You run out, you look at it. It's typically a dog or your son or somebody. Just open the door and let him in. Or if it's a dog, ignore it or shoot it away. Do something. Don't keep telling me (laughs) there's somebody at the door. So there's a lot more work to be done where humans can use with more intelligence from devices. I'm thinking more optimistically. We have a long way to go. And this coexistence of AI and and humans is uh, probably the sweet spot for us. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right about that. It's not either or. It's some kind of collaboration. And an example of this is people are constantly asking me when I give talks worldwide. I mean, one of the first questions will be something like, Will machine learning systems replace doctors? Right. (laughs) And the answer is, no, they're not going to replace all doctors. They might replace some radiologists, but they're not going to replace all doctors, like a family doctor that practices in a rural area that has to deal with a lot of different classes of problems. So what they're going to do is replace doctors who don't use AI, but not replace doctors. That's very interesting. I have a lot of doctors in the family, so I have to be careful what I say. But I tell them the bad doctors who do not use AI and the latest in technology are prime targets for replacement if you're not too careful. Yeah, my wife is a doctor. She's an ophthalmologist and a surgeon. But she was thrilled when I told her that a system from Google and Verily Life Sciences could look at a retina from a human being and tell if it was a male or a female retina, could tell the blood pressure the hemoglobin H1C, and predict cardiac risk, that was just not known at all by the best ophthalmologists until 2018. So I think some interesting opportunities when you mentioned that in both healthcare, because you can make it more accessible to remote places and education. I think products like Zoom has made it easy for doctors to dial in, but still a lot of diagnostics needs to be done and same thing with education. It would be so much better. Yes. You still have to find good teachers. It's not just yes. enough to have connectivity. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for us. I would think of it as it's several things, right? Having an intelligent voice processing, that, that could be AI. Good vision systems are AI. Good heuristic systems. There are several things you could do, and some of them are actually here. In consumer electronics, you see the amount of advancements. I was the biggest non-believer of voice assistants because the first one, you remember, were terrible. You had to yell at them. They recognized you the wrong way and so on. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's there. I'm able to right. get away with a lot of emails by just dictating. <laughs> right. Well, you have to struggle through the early days of voice pattern recognition to get to today's fairly good systems. They're not perfect, but they're already over threshold to be useful. So, Neil, you and I can keep talking forever on this. It's fascinating. It's good that you brought it down to reality that it, while it's good in academic and science fiction, but there's a lot of practical application that all the CIOs must be doing right now. And I totally agree. Yes. With that. How can we stay connected? The way I learn, and most of the fellow CIOs are, we call each other and say, what do you think about this application? What do you think about this vendor or this person, et cetera? Because sometimes by the time it gets published in the traditional analyst reports and so on, it's kind of old. <laughs> so yeah. you want to get kept plugged in. And how do you keep yourself plugged in? And how would you advise us to keep plugged into what's going on? So I think the best way to do that, if you really want to stay ahead of the literature, and by the way, the literature is very fast these days, like mm-hmm. X Archive is a good place to go. And that stuff hasn't even been peer reviewed in many cases. It's just sort of the latest foot in the door of a research group that wants to say, hey, we did this and they want to publish it immediately. So that's a very good place to go. I would certainly look at the DeepMind blog at the DeepMind website. I would look at OpenAI. 
think about the research leaders and where they're going. I would look at the innovative applications of AI conference. I've been mm -hmm. reviewing papers there for the last 22 years. The technical papers we get are probably 500 a year, and we select about 20. So mm -hmm. that's a very good indication of what's happening in the field and what's innovative. And the papers actually outline what the benefits are and how they approach system development. And those are not old and irrelevant by the time they get published. But I think networks are probably the best way. Just join the AAAI, join the IEEE societies, AI societies, go to conferences. There are Strata and there are lots of O'Reilly's conference. There are now probably a thousand different conferences on AI and machine learning. They're easy to find. And now you can go to them using Zoom or other teleconferencing systems. Just to summarize, it has never been easier to stay informed about what's happening in AI and machine learning or to take classes online from everything from Coursera or Khan Academy or Udemy. You name it, you can find online courses and they're actually very credible. So if you want to learn more about machine learning and AI applications, that's yet another way to do it. But I have one word of caution about tracking the research frontiers. I think if you're curious and interested and you want to keep informed, that's great. That's a wonderful reason to stay informed of the research frontiers. But I would caution against confusing the research frontier or the state of the art from the state of the practice. Because you can download systems that have not been fully tested, that are available on GitHub or other open source platforms, and they don't have all of the documentation and all of the test harnesses that you need to make sure that you get reliable results as a CIO within a company. It's one thing for a graduate student to mess around with that stuff, but as a CIO with a team, you probably don't have time to do that. What you do have time to do is to use today's state of the practice. And wow, the state of the practice is just wildly better than it was even two years ago. So there's plenty yeah. of opportunity to do innovative work. I'm going to cheat, Neil. And if I have a question, I'm going to call you. How about that? That's an old fashioned <laughs> here. Hey, is okay. this practical well, Bass, you work? Know, you know, I will always take your calls. So that always works. And I tell my CIO friends, say, listen, I read all this, listen to all this. Then I call one of you and say, is this vendor good? Should I work with them? Is this product good? Is this version up to date? Should I upgrade or not? And that has been invaluable. And I think we should uh, lean on each other to kind of figure out what is the truth, what is practical, et cetera. So, yes. yeah, I, so look forward to a call. Next time I'm confused, I'm going to give you a call. Okay, good. What we want people to do is get excited about the conversation and not be afraid of taking on some of these challenges in AI. We certainly yes. don't want them to go to the board and say, here's an AI project that I want to do, and can I have funding for that? Because we know the answer for that. Right. You've given us an idea of do the opportunity identification or opportunity yes. to ask the right questions and go to the board and say, imagine a world where you can answer these kind of questions accurately yeah. and so on, and how much value would it be? So would you agree? What would be the advice you'd give for the CIOs as board with AI? Yeah, it's a good question, Bask. I think that I would start with talking to the board about imagining questions that you could answer. I think they tend to be very bottom line driven. And right. so I would go in there with a case for two or three pain point problems quantified that says, look, do you realize that your losses are costing you X million dollars per year? 
Do you realize that you're losing customers to the tune of potentially billions per year because you're not doing customer sentiment analysis at a state-of-the-art level? There's all kinds of cases that you could make that are bottom line cases that have to do with pain points that the board would recognize as, oh, that's a problem I have to worry about. And I wouldn't even get into the sort of AI, we're gonna, it's not an AI conversation, it's a pain point conversation. And if they say, okay, Mr. Smarty Pants, like what's your solution to solving these problems? And you say, oh, well, we actually do have some algorithms that can address these problems. And we've looked into the availability of data and we have data that can solve these problems. And we've done a test, a small test of whether or not we can solve a piece of the problem. And here are the results. Look how good they are. So suddenly you've taken the relevance problem in hand, you've taken the uncertainty in hand, and now you're having like a real conversation with an engaged board. Yeah, I've never had technology conversation with the board till they ask. To always the business problem that you're solving, some board members are curious because they want to give the solution to the other boards they are in. So they'll say, hey, Bask, how did you solve this problem? And maybe you can answer that right away or I take time with them offline because that's not the purpose for the board meeting. It is to right. solve a real business problem. And that's right. you're right. And nobody's going to go get fascinated by you going to the cloud or doing AI. <laughs> that doesn't really mean much to most of them. But anyway, thank you. Thank you for the time. Appreciate it. Absolutely. It's a pleasure as always, Bask. Thank you for listening to the CIO Exchange podcast. For more conversations with technology leaders from around the world, consider subscribing to this podcast. And to get video perspectives and deep research, visit vmware.com slash CIO.